You may be seated. Well, in 2012, a man named Steve Jenkins was asked if he wanted to adopt a micro pig. Now, uh, if you don't know this, micro pigs, they're pets that evidently people really love. Uh, they're not, they don't get to be very big, the size of a large cat maybe. But people love them because they're cute and they're low maintenance and relatively intelligent for being pigs, I guess. But here's a picture uh, of uh, some micro pigs if you want to envision them. So those are some... Some micro pigs, if you want to go to the next, uh, the next picture here, uh, there's a little micro pig who wouldn't want one of those. And so part of what people do is when they get these micro pigs, uh, they, they form little communities and, um, and then they take them to shows and they dress them up. So here's a, a cowboy piggy. Uh, so here's the cowboy piggy that you dress up. And uh, here's the guitar piggy. Um, there it is. And then this one, I love this. This one was called the Party Piggy right here, with, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty funny. But uh, I, I learned a little bit about this world reading the article. But this man, Steve Jenkins, he was asked if he wanted to adopt a little micro pig. And he investigated the micro pig world and said, I'll, I'll adopt this little pig. And he was told the micro pig would get to be about 30 pounds. The problem was that after six months, this micro pig was 200 pounds. So something was obviously off. And at 18 months, this micro pig uh, weighed 650 pounds. And so now Steve Jenkins has a 600 and uh, here's a picture, 650 pound pig living in his house. And this pig, Esther, this is the name of the pig, likes cupcakes, which is kind of interesting. If you want to go to the next slide uh, here, I don't know if we have it or not. There it is. There's, so Esther eats cupcakes all the time. Now I was reading the article and I thought it was so interesting, but it illustrates the principle that I think we've all experienced. And here it is. It's that expectations shape your experience. That how you experience life is deeply shaped by your expectations. Steve Jenkins was told this micro pig would max out at 30 to 40 pounds. And so he was expecting this pig to stay small. And so as the pig was growing larger and larger and larger and larger, he grew more and more and more concerned and confused about what was going on. And the problem was that his expectations were wrong. His expectations were built on bad information. In reality, uh, instead of having a micro pig, uh, he had a, just a commercial farm pig. That's what he was dealing with. But he was confused and concerned needlessly because he had bad expectations based on bad information. And in Luke chapter 19, we see that the Jews had big and wrong expectations for the Messiah. And these expectations were based on bad information. So here's the wrong expectation. Israel was expecting Jesus to go to war against Rome in Jerusalem and win. So as we're approaching this text, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Israel is expecting Jesus to go to, to, go to war against Rome. And this battle was to begin in Jerusalem and he was supposed to win. Jesus was going to use his power to overthrow the Romans and establish Israel as the superpower of the world. Verse 11 says, as they were listening, he went to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. He's in Jericho and the, the city of Jericho is flooded with people and people are on team Jesus, but they're on team Jesus because they think he's gonna start a, revolu a, a revolution, that he was gonna start a war. And Jesus knows I'm not going to Rome to start a war. I'm going to Rome or I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm not going to Jerusalem to start a, a war with the Romans. I'm going to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of the world. It says they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. They thought that's why he's going there. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of the Romans. 
and for the sins of the rest of the world. And so Jesus tells this parable to reshape the expectations of his followers. And what we learn here from the parable, it should shape our expectations as followers of Christ. Everyone, everyone has expectations. Everyone has expectations in life. And as Christians, our expectations should be shaped not by our feelings, not by our desires, not by what we want the world to be like. Rather, our expectations need to be shaped by Christ and his mission in the world. We need to allow the scriptures to inform our expectations. I am convinced that the primary reason Christians experience prolonged frustration and discouragement is that we have wrong expectations. We have wrong expectations of the Christian life. And so we're always battling what we're experiencing because our expectations are loaded with desires We're just absolutely loaded with our own wants for the way we want our life to turn out. And it's not rooted in the scriptures. We think the Christian life is like a micro pig, but in reality, it's like a commercial pig. And we don't know what to do with it. We're like, this is, we want this, but it's something else. And so through this parable, Jesus is going to reshape our expectations of the Christian life. And I want to make four observations about the parable. And each observation has a word for us to remember. The first word is the word history. The second word is the word investment. The third word is the word reward. And the fourth is punishment. Let's start with history. The parable in Luke 19 mirrors a real life historical event that happened during the lifetime of Jesus. And every Jewish person would have known about this historical event. And the parable is based on this real historical event. Here's the event. Herod the Great, he was king over the region of Judea, which was the nation of Israel. But he wasn't an absolute king. He was a petty king. And to be a petty king meant that you were accountable to Caesar. So if Caesar didn't want you to be king anymore, you were no longer king. He could just get rid of you. So ultimately, you were accountable to Caesar. But Caesar would say, okay, go do what you want. I'll call you a king and do what you want. When King Herod died, or Herod the Great died, he gave most of the Judean region to one of his sons named Herod Archelaus. And Herod Archelaus was a vicious man. He was a terrible man, just like his dad. And so the timeline is that Herod the Great dies. Herod Archelaus knows that he's going to assume the throne. But before he could actually rule as king, he had to travel to Rome, be interviewed by Caesar, and then confirmed by Caesar to be the king over this region of Judea. But before he could make his trip to Rome, there was a protest in Jerusalem during the Passover. And it was a massive protest, a massive, I mean, an enormous riot, a massive protest. There were 30,000, according to Josephus, there were 30,000 men protesting in Jerusalem. And so Archelaus knew that he had a big problem on his hands. His dad had died. He was going to assume the throne. And he said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squash this rebellion. So what he did is that he took the Roman army, which was overpowering, he took the Roman army, rounded up 3,000 Jewish men. Think about this. So there's a crowd of 30,000 angry men. He takes the Roman army, he rounds up 3,000 of them, takes them into the temple, and one by one executes them during the Passover in the temple. And so he squashes the protest. And it, it, was, it was burned into the minds of all the Jews during this time period. And so finally, Archelaus says, okay, the, the protest is, gone, is done, and I need to go make my trip to Rome. So he travels to Rome, but the Jews said, no way. You cannot get away with this. So they send a delegation to Rome to appeal to Caesar. 
And what they say to Caesar is, Caesar, we don't want this man to rule over us. Archelaus cannot rule over us. And this is why. And they told him what happened. Caesar confirmed the details and said, Archelaus, when Archelaus got there, Caesar said, Archelaus, you cannot be king. You can still govern, but you're not going to be the king. You're going to be an ethnarch, which is like a mayor. And when he was given the title of ethnarch instead of king, no one took him seriously. So that meant Archelaus could not rule for very long. And eventually he was replaced by a man named Pontius Pilate. Pilate would replace Archelaus. And all of this happened during the lifetime of Jesus. And the primary place that Archelaus ruled when he was in charge was in Jericho. There was a palace in Jericho where Archelaus ruled. And Jesus is telling this parable in Jericho. Maybe he was even close to the palace of of Archelaus. So he's using a familiar story to illustrate a point about himself. It's not the same story, but it's a similar story as we will see. The second observation is the word investment. It is investment. This parable illustrates the importance of how you invest your life. Every one of us, we are investing our lives in something. You are investing your life, your days, your money, your gifting, your energy, your focus. You are investing your life in something. The question is what are you investing your life in? Luke 19, 12 says, Therefore he said, A nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return. And so in the parable, Jesus is the nobleman, and he's not traveling to Rome to receive authority to rule over Jerusalem or Judea. He is traveling to heaven to receive authority to rule over all things. In the parable, he's traveling to heaven to receive authority to be king of kings and lord of of lords. And before he goes, before he ascends into heaven, he dies on the cross. He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And in the scriptures, you see that the cross was the coronation of King Jesus. When was he crowned king? He was crowned king at the cross. He did not wear a crown of gold and diamonds on his head like most kings. His crown was a crown of thorns. Thorns and thistles are the symbol of the curse that we are under because of sin. We are under a curse. We can't keep the law of God. We have sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. And so we are under a curse. We are under the wrath of God. If God gave us justice, we would be condemned. We would be cast into hell forever and rightly so. And at the cross, Jesus wasn't dying a random death. He was dying in our place. He was cursed on our behalf. He suffered the wrath of God in our place. He was condemned in our place that we might be forgiven, that we might be given a new life, that we might be born again. And after he died, they laid him in a tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. He spent some time with his followers, and then he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven, where he rules and reigns over all things. And one day, he will return to judge the world in righteousness. But before he leaves in this parable, verse 13 says, he called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas, and told them, engage in business until I come back. In the parable, we are his servants. If you proclaim to be a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you are a servant. And he calls 10 of them to himself. He gives each one of them a mina. He gives them the same thing. Now, a mina in today's Uh, money would be about $9,000. It's not a huge sum of money. And we aren't to try to figure out exactly what the mina is as far as how much of a value it is today in American dollars. That's not the point. 
The mina represents your life. It represents your life. Christ has given you your life. He is your creator. He is your sustainer. He has given you the days that you have to live. He has given you the money that you have. He has given you your natural and spiritual gifts. He's given you energy. He has laid out the days of your life. He has given you everything that you have. If it's good, it comes from him. He's the one who allows you to continue to breathe. He has given you a mina. He has given you a life. And he says, engage in business until I come. And so the meaning is clear. That we are to invest our time, our money, our energy, our gifting for the king. The business of the king. We are to invest our lives in the business of the king. We are not to invest our lives in the temporary pleasures of this life. We are not to to live for this world. We're not to live for the pleasures of this life. We are not to live for ourselves and our families. Because if we just live for ourselves, if we live for our families, we are wasting our life. We are being unfaithful to our king. And so let me ask you a question here uh, this morning for you to consider. Here it is. What are you giving your life to? What is it that you're giving your life to? This past week, this past month, what are you investing in? If you knew Christ was going to return in 30 days, what would you do? Or what would you stop doing? I think this, this is a good question for us to think about. If, if you knew, okay, you have 30 days. The Lord Jesus is returning in 30 days. What would you do? I, I asked someone this question this week, and, and this guy said he, said, he said, I would tell everyone that I knew about Christ. He goes, I would just make a list. Who do I know? And then I would go tell them about Christ. He says, I would probably quit my job. That's what I would do. I'd quit my job. I'd run up my credit card debt without any guilt whatsoever. <laughs> he goes, I would stop mowing my lawn. He goes, I'd probably stop even brushing my teeth. And I said, bro, that's too far, man. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> Jesus likes fresh breath, okay? If you're going to see him in 30 days, brush your teeth. But, but think about that for a moment. Just think about that for a moment. If you knew you had 30 days, what would you do? And the point of the question is not to say, quit your job. That's not the point. The point of the question isn't to say, why are you taking care of your lawn? Stop mowing your lawn. That's not the point. That is not the point of the question. The the point of the question is to help us understand what will matter when we see him. What will matter when we see him? And we want to invest our lives now in what will matter then. We want to invest our lives today. And I I think just even even as I was studying this passage this week, I, I just thought, man, there are things in my life that I give myself to that I just know don't matter. I just know it. Like if I'm just honest, I just know. Like this thing, that's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my energy. It's a waste of my money. We want to invest our lives now in what will matter then. This is what Christ is calling us to. Again, we shouldn't feel guilty for one second about having jobs, working and having jobs and running businesses. That's part of what God is calling us to. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have any hobbies, that hobbies are insignificant. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we want to be clear in our souls what really matters. And so are you investing your life in people? Are you investing your life in people? Are you investing your life in the church? 
Are you investing your life in the word of God, knowing the word of God? Are you investing your life in sharing the gospel with people? Are you investing your life in knowing and worshiping Christ? These are the things that will matter most on that day. There are other things that matter, certainly, but we want to be clear in our souls what will matter on the day that we see him. This is a call to invest in eternity. And so many of you live that way. So many of you have been living that way for years. It's a beautiful thing. Now, as we invest our lives in the kingdom of God, what should we expect? What should we expect? Verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. And so the subjects are the Pharisees. His subjects are the Romans. It's the people who don't even claim to be Christians at all. His subjects represent the world. And the difference between Archelaus and Jesus is that Archelaus was a vicious, cruel man who executed these, Jew, these Jews. But Jesus is the exact opposite of a king. The, he's, he's, he couldn't be more different than Archelaus. Jesus, King Jesus, lays down his life for his enemies. He lays down his life for his enemies. He came into the world to give life to the world, to give eternal life to the world. And so it's absurd that these people would look at a king like King Jesus and say, we don't want this man to rule over us. And this is what they say. So what should, we, what should we expect? We should expect rejection. As we go about investing our lives in the kingdom of God, we should expect rejection. Verse 8, I'm sorry, John 15 verse 18 says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Now think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you go about the kingdom of God and you find that the world hates you, understand they hated me first. Jesus is the only perfect man to ever live. He's the most loving person on the planet, the most holy person on the planet. Everything he did was done in obedience to his father. You, you cannot even be close to being as perfect as Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, the world that we live in, they saw my life, they heard me preach, they saw my power, and they concluded, this man must die. So he says, if you go about following me in the world and you find that the world hates you, don't be surprised. In fact, we should, respect, or we should expect rejection. And there seems to be more and more open hostility to Christ in our country. And I think as Christians, we need to recognize that we're not, we are not here just to go along and get along with everybody. We, we are the salt and the light of the world. That's who we are. We are not the darkness. We are the light in Christ. We are to be different than the world. The goal is not to just get along with everybody. The goal is not to go with the flow. The goal is to exalt Christ. It's to lift up Christ. And so following Christ is not a strategy to win the approval of the world. And I think many of us, we move about our lives and we, we, the way we think is that I love Christ and I really love people. So why would anyone hate me? Like if I, I like, uh, I'm, I love Christ and I love, like I see people and I love them. Why would the world hate me? And it's confusing to us. And I understand it, but what Jesus says is if the world hates you, understand 
that it hated me before it hated you. Now, the world shouldn't hate us because we're cruel or proud. Certainly not. We shouldn't be hated for that. But we, we need to be prepared to stand on the truth, to communicate the truth of God's word, the truth of the scriptures in the most kind and loving way possible. And if we, if we experience the rejection of the world, we should not be surprised by it at all. Following Christ is not a strategy to win the approval of the world. Following Christ is not a strategy to make your life easier. Following Christ is a strategy to win people to Christ. That's what it's about. It's about winning. It's about exalting Christ and then winning people to Christ. And as we give our lives away for Christ... And we experience the rejection of the world. The promise is that we find our lives as we give our lives away. So many of us, what we do is we just want to hang on to our life and play it safe and never take any risk and never say anything hard or never take a stand for anything just to pursue comfort. And what Jesus says is that if you hang on to your life, you lose it. You lose your life. The surest way to lose your life, to waste your life, is to hold on to it, to to, to keep it for yourself. But Jesus says... He says, if you lose your life for me in the gospel, you will find it. And I have found that to be true over and over and over again, that as you give your life away for Christ and his honor and glory in the world, you find your life. You find your life. And so he's asking us to invest our lives in his kingdom. The third word is the word reward. Reward. Jesus makes it clear in the parable that investing in Christ, investing in his kingdom is the best investment you could ever make. It is an investment that will will pay off in the end. And there are two details I want you to notice about our reward. First, we will give an account to Christ for how we lived our lives. I hope this sounds like good news to you. I I hope it sounds like good news to you. I think this is supposed to be good news, that we will give an account to Christ for how we lived our lives. Verse 15, at his return, think about this for a moment. At his return, the promise of the scriptures, do you believe in the Bible? I hope so. I hope, we, I hope that we're building our lives on the scriptures. If the Bible is true, there, there is this promise repeated over and over and over again that he will return. He will return. It says, at his return, having received the authority to be king, and when Christ returns... He will not come as a baby born of a virgin in poverty and obscurity for decades. When he returns, he will return in glory. He will return in power. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. And so the promise all over the scriptures is that you will stand before him and you will give an account for what you do today. What you do today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day and every day before that, you will give an account for how you invested the time that God gave you, the money God gave you, the energy God gave you, the relationships God gave you. How did you invest your life in the kingdom of God? This day is coming and it will be here before you know it. Life is slipping away. Our lives are slipping away. The scriptures say we are here today and gone tomorrow. We are but a vapor. 
That's what we are. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Our lives, like if you take, uh, pick up some sand in your hands and each little grain of sand is like a day, it's like you pick it up and you try to hold on to it, but no matter how hard you hold on to it, it's just slipping out of your hands. It's just slipping out of your hands. We will give an account. And the first servant is such a good example for us. It's a beautiful example for us. Verse 16, the first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. 10 more minas. I bet you that servant was eager for that day when he stood before his king. He was eager. He was thinking, he told me to invest this, engage in business with, with this one mina, and now I have these 10 minas. I can't wait to give them. I can't wait to give them back to him. The second servant came forward. He had one mina. He invested it, and he had five minas. I'm sure he was eager for that day when he would stand before the Lord. And so I, I hope it's good news. When you think about seeing the Lord, I hope your heart is thrilled to the sky. I hope your heart just leaps for joy. We're going to see him. We will see the Lord. And these first two servants, they invested wisely, and they earned a return. The second detail is that the reward we will get is much greater than the return on investment, than our return on investment. So the reward we will get is much greater than the return on investment. Look, look at verse 17. Now look at, look, look at the king's response to these first two servants. Well done, good servant. Well done. Just thinking about the Lord praising us. It's wild to think about. Well done, good servant, he told them. Because you've been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you'll be over five towns. Now, this reward from the master, from the king, would have blown the minds of his audience because there's this deliberate contrast. It's hard for us because we don't live in a world of, of uh, minas. Have you ever thought about a mina before? Probably not. We don't live in a world of minas. And so, so minas and cities and towns, we, we don't live in that world. But to, to the original audience, this would have blown their minds, absolutely blown their minds. So the first guy, he has not, he's given $9,000. He works, 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 turns it into $90,000. What's his reward? Ten cities. People would have said, what? The contrast is so great. The reward is much greater than $90,000. You have authority over ten towns. The reward is much greater than the return. It's much greater than $90,000. Jesus himself in verse 17 calls what this man had as a very small matter. This one mina, you invested this one mina, made 10 minas, and then you get 10 towns. It's not proportional at all. The reward is not proportional to the, to, to the, to the investment of the servant. It would be like if, uh, if you had a math test, like a 10th grade math test. Do you remember those days? So you had a 10th grade math test and you work pretty hard, you get ready and you get like an 85%, you get a B and then you get a reward. Like what, what's the reward for that? It would be like an Elon Musk spaceship. You're like, what? It's like, how does this, this is so much bigger than a B on a test. It's not proportional at all. And receiving praise from this king and then receiving a reward, this is supposed to motivate our souls. God is not stingy in the way he rewards us. He is not stingy in the way he rewards us. And we're supposed to think of this, that every time, just think about this, every time you forgive someone who's hurt you, God sees it. And he's not stingy in the way he rewards you. Every time you're tempted to lust, 
and you turn away, your eyes turn away, and you look to Christ, he sees that, and he will reward you. And every kind word you say, every time you serve someone, every time you close your mouth when you need to close your mouth instead of running your mouth, every time you share the gospel and you experience rejection, every dollar you give in faith, everything that you do in faith, the Lord Jesus sees all of it and he is a gracious rewarder of those who seek him. Every act of faith, today, every act of faith, every ounce of investment in his kingdom, he will reward you. And it should thrill our hearts. It should absolutely thrill our hearts. And so his original audience would have noticed that this is so, the reward is so much bigger than what these servants did. And the rewards that we will receive from the Lord are not fragile. They're not temporary. They're not subject to thieves. They're not subject to rust or decay. They will not lose their glory over the course of time. Whereas everything in this life, everything valuable in this life, it is, it is slipping out of your hands. It is slipping out of your hands. The value of all these things that we really value right now, they're all slipping out of our hands. I remember a few years ago, our neighbors, they bought a, a brand new Cadillac Escalade. And uh, it was a big family one, eight passenger. It's a beautiful vehicle. So like you see it and you're like, wow, I mean, it really gets your attention. And so my wife, uh, they went out to dinner. She went out to dinner with our neighbor very kind lady, and they had a great time, and uh, they went out to dinner, they came back, and when they came back, they, they rolled down the windows, and, and they drove into our, our driveway, and uh, I was outside with my kids at the time, and uh, we were just playing around, and they drove up, and then we were talking to them in, in the car, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw my dog, Manny. Now, Manny is a 150-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback, so he's a big boy, and I see him darting towards the, the brand new Cadillac Escalade, and I knew exactly what was about ready to happen. So he's running towards, towards Meg, my wife, as hard as he can. The happiest little face a dog could have. He's just so happy, he's just running. He's so happy to see her. Windows are down, and immediately he jumps up, paws on the little ledge on the passenger, <laughs> the passenger door, and Meg is horrified because she knows exactly what's gonna happen. And I know what's gonna happen and I don't know what to do and I can't stop it. It's like a car accident in slow motion because then what happens is his paws are up, so happy, paws down, scratches the door. And it was like you could hear it scratching the door of the new Escalade. And I thought, oh my goodness, it was so awkward. Obviously we killed Manny right then on the spot because I don't know what, what do you do with him? <laughs> We shot him. I don't know. I mean, it was terrible. And it's so awkward. You're like, oh, I, don't, I, I don't know what to do here. It was terrible. Now, our, our neighbors are very gracious, and we worked, you know, we worked it all out. But I was thinking about that vehicle with Manny the dog versus my car that I had at the time, a 2008 Honda Odyssey. Now, I love Honda Odysseys. Don't get me wrong. I love them. Half of you have Honda Odysseys, probably. <laughs> I think that's probably what's happening. But uh, this one, it very, pretty high mileage, and there were some problems with it. And uh, one of the problems was that, like, the rail with the doors, the sliding doors, was broken. And so the doors would just fall off. Like, if, it went, if you opened it, you pulled it, it, the doors would just fall off. And so you had to, it was several thousand dollars to fix. And so I said, we're just going to be very careful in the way we open and close the door. So we got used to it, but my kids would forget. And I remember one time I was at a parking lot and my kids got out and they just opened them up. They opened them up, they came off the rails 
uh, both doors fell off in the parking lot. And this guy walks over. He, wa- he saw what happened. He walks over. It's so genuine, so happy, so genuine, so sincere. And he's like, can I help you? And I was like, with what? And he was like, look at your doors. And I was like, oh, no big deal. And then I had learned how to pick him up and just throw him in the little hole there. <laughs> then we just went on. He was, he was very surprised by that. Anyways, but I was thinking about it. 2008 Honda Odyssey door, like these doors fall off. And I was unfazed by it. I, don't, I didn't even care. Why? Uh, it's a 2008 Honda Odyssey. It was, run, it, was on, it was at the end of its life, a lot of miles. I just didn't care that much. As long as they would run, I didn't really care that much. And see, everything in life, everything in life is moving from a cat. Even the things you really value, they're they're moving from a Cadillac Escalade to a Honda Odyssey 2008. Doors are falling off. Everything. You see glory, awesome. But over the course of time, they're they're losing their value. But see, the way that the Lord rewards us is not that way. Every reward, every reward he gives will last forever. It will never lose its glory. It'll never lose its value. It will last forever. Not subject to thieves, not subject to rust. And our God is a gracious rewarder of those who seek him. A gracious rewarder. And so brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ the resurrected, living Jesus Christ is asking us to be faithful to him. He's not asking you to be like other people. He's asking you to be faithful to him. That's the goal. Be faithful to the king. And he promises it's worth it. The fourth observation is the word punishment. Verse 20. And another came and said, Master, this is the third servant, Master, here is your mina. I've kept it safe in a cloth. So this servant doesn't invest at all. Servant one takes his one mina, turns it into ten. Servant two takes his one mina, turns it into five. Servant three takes his one mina and covers it in a cloth. He doesn't invest at all. He claims to be a servant. He calls the king master, but he does not invest at all. He doesn't serve He doesn't take any risks. He doesn't give. He doesn't share the gospel. He's not in fellowship. He doesn't do anything. He just takes what God gave him and he covered it up. And instead of investing, he just has excuses. Verse 22 or 21. He says, because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. Now, the original audience who would have heard this parable would have said, what do you mean this man is a harsh man? Did you see the rewards he gave? 9,000 to 90,000, you get 10 cities, 10 towns. What do you mean he's harsh? He's been so gracious in the way he rewarded the first two servants. What do you mean he's a harsh man? He's not a harsh man. He's a gracious man. But this is what's in the mind of the third servant that justified him not investing in the business of the king. He says, you collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. Verse 22, he told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. Please note that not investing. What the the third servant did is evil. Do you see that? I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. 
So this, I don't believe this is referring to the person who's investing in the kingdom of God imperfectly, who's trying and failing and gets distracted and keeps investing, keeps loving, keeps serving. This is not that person. This is the person who says, I'm going to live by my own rules. I'm going to proclaim Christ as my master and king, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do with my life. It's evil. Evil often hides in our excuses. If you, knew I was a, if you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who doesn't have, even what he does have will be taken away. In the kingdom of God, this is the way it often works. Not always, but often. In the kingdom of God, faithful labor, faithful work is often rewarded with more faithful work. Faithful work, when you're faithful with a little, God will entrust you with more. So the reward for faithful work is more faithful work. If you've been faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with much. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. If you're faithful to the Lord, you're going to be entrusted with more. Does it always work that way? Certainly not. But often, this is the way that it works. And from the one who does not have, the one who does not invest, the one who is not faithful to the master, even what he does have will be taken away. And so you read this and you think, man, the King, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be investing our lives. And most people, they want the parable to end at verse 26, but it doesn't end here. It goes on to verse 27. Here's the end of the parable. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Jesus has enemies. He has enemies. And one day, this king, this glorious king, this loving king, this merciful king will destroy all of his enemies. And one remarkable truth about the gospel, the, the, the remarkable truth about King Jesus is that he first came to die in the place of his enemies. That's, that, this is wild. Most kings send other people out to go fight for him, to lay down their lives for the king, but the king came to die in the place of his enemies. That's who we are apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we're dead in our sins. Apart from Christ, we're separated, we're lost. We're under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. Apart from Christ, the grace of Christ, we are his enemies. And Christ came to die for you, for, your en for his enemies, that you might be forgiven, that you might be reconciled back to him. And all those who look at God's offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, all those who look at that offer and reject that offer one day will be crushed by the king. They will experience the wrath of God. If you reject his salvation, the only thing that remains is wrath. The only thing that remains is hell. And so just to close, I want to ask you a couple questions. Here's the first question. Who are you in the story? Are you a faithful servant who's investing imperfectly in the kingdom of God? Is that you? Are you a faithful servant investing imperfectly in the kingdom of God? Are you an unfaithful servant 
pretending to be a Christian, claiming Christ as your king, but really you're just living for yourself? Are you an enemy of Christ? Saying, I will not have this man rule over me. This man will not tell me what to do with my sex life. This man will not tell me what to do with my money. This man will not tell me what to do with my life. I will not have this man rule over me. And if you are an enemy of Christ, I would urge you to bow the knee of your heart to Christ, to acknowledge him as king. That's who he is. He's the one who loves you. He created you. He came into the world to die for the sins of the world. And every person who would repent and believe the gospel moves from being an enemy to a friend, an enemy to a son of God. You go from being dead to alive, condemned to justified by the grace of God. I would, I would urge you to bow the knee of your heart to Christ. If you're a, fra- a fake Christian, I would urge you to invest your life in Christ, in his kingdom. If you've been playing games with the Lord, stop playing games with him. Stop playing games with him. Rather, say, Lord, how can I take what you've given me and invest it in your kingdom? And if you've been faithfully and imperfectly investing in the kingdom of God, I just want to remind you that it's worth it. (laughs) It is worth it. The Lord Jesus Christ knows all the difficulties of trying to have a job, run a company, keep your marriage intact, raise your kids, pull the weeds in your garden. He knows all the tensions that you are walking through. And it is totally worth it to be faithful to him. He, it is totally worth it to take little risks, little calculated steps of faith to exalt his name. What he's telling us is it's worth it. He says, I see it. And I hope that's good news to your heart. I hope it's good news that spurs you on towards trusting him and obeying him, even in the face of difficulty. So if you're, by the grace of God, imperfectly but faithfully serving him, remember it's worth it. One day we will see our king. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Lord, we we just know we are imperfect. Lord, we sin, we rebel, we, we disobey you. And Lord, we don't want to live that way. There's so many here who have been so faithful for so many years. And I just pray you would strengthen their heart this morning. That they would be encouraged by the good news that one day the king will return. One day we will see you. And for the people in, in this room who are just playing games with you. I, I pray they would stop doing that and that they would, they would bend the knee of their heart. They would acknowledge you as king, as savior, as the one who rules over all things and that they would be faithful to you, that, that we wouldn't try to be like everyone else, Lord. We wouldn't just compare ourselves with other people, Lord, but we would set our hearts to be faithful to you, that we would stand firm in this lost world Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.